The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I'm going to uh, talk about um, Sutta, Majjhima Nikaya 128, um, as it's interpreted by uh, Ajahn Sujito, no, Sujato. Let me make sure I got that right. Yeah, Bhikkhu Sujato. And um, so, and I'm using his translation, right? His, I don't know Pali, so um, there's interpretations of interpretations, right? And I'm, so I'm just sharing freely as I read through this sutta, kind of the things that came up for me and what it made me think about. And there's things that are both directly said and then there's things that are demonstrated in the way that the story is told. And I think it's really worthwhile to um, recognize that the Buddha taught not just in the words that he shared, but in the way he behaved. So for me, and I actually have two, there's so much in the sutta, there's, I'm planning to do one pass of it tonight, and, or this morning, and another pass tomorrow night, um, focusing on t- today the aspects of relationship and community and practice, and tomorrow on the corruptions or the things that get in the way of community and, and practice. And the, the sutta is called, uh, translated as corruptions. And um, corruptions, um, let me see. There's a, I don't see where it is right now, but um, the translation of corruptions is essentially things that don't belong, that are kind of come into play and just kind of corrode or disrupt, um, make make problems. (laughs) So I think... Because of the way I want to share the sutta, I think that I'll give you first a whole, just a brief summary of the whole arc of the story. And then as I go through, you'll have a you know, map of sort of where, where we're going. And hopefully it'll help you keep track. And also, um, as I'm saying, I was reading and rereading the sutta and noticing what was coming up for me. What was I noticing? And I invite you to do the same. I invite you to be curious and interested in how your own mind responds, what what associations your mind makes. And along the way, I'll be opening up and inviting you to share if you want to share any of your own personal reflections. I think we have an opportunity to, to learn from each other in this way. So the summary of this sutta <laughs> is that um, the Buddha goes out of compassion to a Sangha that's in, in conflict. And when he gets there, he tries three times to halt the argument and to, um, you know, engage the sutta. But he doesn't succeed, so he moves on. And then he visits a single meditator um, where he uh, connects with him, asks him how he is, and then Um, teaches him Dhamma, instructs and inspires him. And then he moves on to um, another, a park where there are three companions living together and what is described as with love. 
living together with love, loving themselves. And he uh, asks them how they're doing in a number of ways. And I'll go into the details later, right? And, you know, are they getting along? Are they living in harmony? And, um, and then when he finds out, yes, they are indeed, he goes on to ask about their practice and how they are progressing in their own meditation practice. And then he teaches him about his own experience with difficulties or blocks or corruptions to his meditation to help them find a way free from the corruptions that are arising in their own practice. So, you know, right away we see the Buddha goes, he's responding out of compassion to a Sangha that's in conflict. At the time that he was asked to go, he was staying in a monastery. And so we can kind of assume that, I assume, that it was, um, you know, he was being able to meditate, practice, that he had food and shelter and companions who were also practicing. And there was a um, mendicant who, uh, from Kasambi, came and told the Buddha that at Kasambi they were arguing, quarreling, disputing, and continuing continually wounding each other with barbed words. So mendicant is someone who practices um, relying chiefly or exclusively on alms to survive. In principle, mendicants, you know, there's multiple religious orders, but they have little property, right? And... um, many instances they've taken vows of poverty in order that all their time and energy could be expended on practicing their respective faith, preaching, and serving society. So a kasamba, where they're quarreling and brawling and in deep disputes, this is another translation, they say stabbing each other with verbal daggers. They're clearly not doing the other parts of being a mendicant, Right? So to help kind of uh, provide a contrast, I'm going to reference a different sutta where someone describes the Buddhist community of practitioners when he comes upon them. And he says, because he's he's referencing first this visitor, how he's seen other communities like Kambasa. And then he, he comes to the Buddhas and he says, but here... I see Bhikkhu smiling and cheerful, sincerely joyful, plainly delighting with their faculties fresh, living at ease, unruffled, subsisting on what others give, abiding with a mind as aloof as a wild steer. And then... um, so 
just this huge contrast in what happens in communities based on how we're practicing and living with each other, right? So the Buddha has gone to Kambasa. He consented in silence when he asked. He just got up and went. And when he arrives, the sutta says, he said, enough mendicants. Stop arguing, quarreling, and disputing. The Buddha repeats this three times. And each time, the I'm assuming it's the mendicant that came to ask him to come. It doesn't say explicitly. That mendicant says to the Buddha, Wait, sir, let the Buddha, the lord of the Dharma, remain pa- passive, dwelling in blissful meditation in present life. We will be known for this arguing, quarreling, and disputing. So three times the Buddha says, you know, enough. Stop quarreling. Stop disputing. And three times the mendicant responds, wait, wait, you know, you live passive dwelling in blissful meditation. Another thing to notice about, you know, the Buddha comes and immediately tells them, you know, wait and stop, and they don't listen, is there's no reception for the Buddha. There's no greeting of the Buddha when he arrives. There's no listening to the Buddha. So in the morning, the Buddha uh, robed up and took his bowl and robe and entered Kasambi for alms. And after the meal, on his return from alms round, he set his lodgings in order. Taking his bowl and robe, he recited these verses while standing right there. So the Buddha is quite direct. <laughs> he's, in, this, in these phrases, it's like a poem that he, he speaks. He doesn't mince words. It's very direct. And I think this is also a teaching. Buddha's not being unkind. He didn't yell. He didn't kind of argue himself. He just asked them to stop three times. So he's preparing to leave with clarity. And he says, When many voices shout at once, no one thinks that they're a fool. While a sangha's being split... None thought another to do, be better. Dolts, yes, dolts, <laughs> pretending to be astute, they talk their words right out of bounds. They blab at will, their mouths agape, and no one knows what leads them on. And then he, he says in quotes, yeah, they abused me, they hit me, they beat me, they robbed me. For those who bear such a grudge, hatred never ends. He repeats, they abused me, they hit me, they beat me, they robbed me. For those who bear no such grudge, so who don't go on in this way, hatred has an end. 
For never is hatred settled by hate. It is settled by love. This is an eternal truth. There's um, a similar verse in the Dhammapada. So I'll reference it here to sort of kind of, you know, savor in this teaching a little bit. And it, it includes this explicit teaching on how the mind precedes what happens. So all experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows. As the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. Hatred ends, never ends through hatred. By non-hatred alone does it end. This is an ancient truth. So we go back to his poem, and he says, Others don't understand that here we need to be restrained. But those who do understand this being clever settle their conflicts. So something in here is really important to me, which is we do, things are going to come up. When we're living and practicing in community, we're going to have conflict, differences. And so what he's saying is, well, be restrained. Be restrained about how you respond to that conflict. And, and settle. So being clever, wise, settle your conflicts. So the Buddha is encouraging us to deal directly with conflict. He's not saying be passive, try and be nicey-nice, happy-happy all the time. right? In this, he's implying that it's natural for difficulties to arise in relationship. But that hatred... And, and operating from hatred will not help, right? It won't end the conflict. Another thing about um, this is the being clever. So the Buddha is emphasizing wisdom when he's using the word clever. Wisdom is praised as the most, the most right? The wisdom that is praised the most is not knowledge, that one has acquired. It's not being able to recite the texts or tell people things. The wisdom that is praised is a form of penetrative seeing directly into one's aspect of life, comes from the application of the teachings, right? Comes from experience. In, in the Buddha's teaching, wisdom plays a central role in the path to liberation. Not only does it lead to enlightenment, right? It is a result of enlightenment. So, you know, the Buddha, the Buddha is really um, kind of referenced earlier, the people who are, you know, debating and talking and thinking they're right, right? That's getting caught in a thicket of views. It's, you know, your assertions, your intellect versus somebody else's. 
And that's not the kind of the wisdom that the Buddha is encouraging us to cultivate. So back to the poem. Buddha says, Breakers of bones and taker of life, thieves of cattle, horses, wealth, those who plunder the nation, even they can come together. So why on earth can't you? And then he goes on to say something else that's really important. Two lines, I'll read one at a time. If you find an alert companion, a wise and virtuous friend, then overcoming all adversities, wander with them, joyful and mindful. If you find no alert companion, no wise and virtuous friend, then, like a king who flees his conquered realm, wander alone like a tusker in the wilds. So again, this is, goes back to the Buddhist, like he went to this community in conflict, tried to help. There was no wisdom there, no engagement there. So he left. He's going to go off on his own. And sometimes we need to do the same. The, one of the things about what the Buddha de- did that I, I think is really important is three times he invited them to stop. Three times. And I think this is also a teaching, right? Like sometimes, how, how often do we either keep trying and keep trying and keep trying and we're beating our head against you know, the wall? And other times, when do we walk away too soon? And I like this idea of trying three times. It's a nice, you know, it's a nice number. And so, like, there's this balance here. We're not just coming in and expecting everything to be okay and fine right away. But, you know, we try, we try, we try again. But at some point, maybe after three times, we recognize, okay, I, they're not here. This 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 notion of the king with a conquered kingdom, right? It's like the Buddha is sort of like the king of the Dharma, right? And in this little sangha, there's there's no Dharma happening, right? There's there's a lot of conflict, <laughs> and so he leaves. He doesn't try and take them with him. He doesn't try and you know. It's just okay. I'm moving on. And at the same time, when we find, you know, wise companions, right, it's such a blessing. Like, it's such a blessing to come here and to sit with you all, to feel the support of sitting in community, to go on a retreat and have the incredible support of of watching everybody else move their bodies and sit in stillness and quiet. There's so much support that happens in that realm. And there's times for practice alone, too. Another way, you know, modern term for what the Buddha is demonstrating might be the word boundaries. He had boundaries. He had good boundaries, right? His own clarity about what he was willing to do and not do. Where he could help, where he couldn't help.
maybe this is a, a moment to ask, is anyone else having other associations or thoughts that you would like to share? It's fine if not, just an open invitation. Martha will have a, a microphone right up there, yeah. If anyone has um, anything else they're kind of noticing or picking up on. No? Yeah? Oh, great. Okay. We got two people. Thank you. I was just thinking um, one reason for the difference or for the conflict is <clears throat> a real attachment to the views, a real attachment to, uh, you know, not necessarily being right, but their what their thoughts are in their argument and uh, unwilling to let that go. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So. You, can you pass it to her in the corner? Um, I'm not sure what I want to say, but like, the, okay, I'm not sure what I want to say, um, but I really appreciate this talk. Mm. Uh, it's resonating with me. It's this <laughs> this uh, ego knowing I'm right <laughs> yeah. in a relationship or something. And then uh, I'm just really hearing like, no. <laughs> so thank you. Beautiful. Beautiful. Over here. I had a spiritual advisor many years ago who had a phrase that has helped me a great deal in my life, and that is, being right is a disease. Mm. Very, very (laughs) dis-easeful. Yeah, great. Oh, I love it. I so appreciate you sharing these reflections because, you know, when we... When we study together, when we practice the Dharma together, you know, there's there's so much wisdom and everyone is going to see a little different or approach it and feel it a di- little differently. And and that's, that's engagement with the practice, which is the most important thing, is to engage with the teachings, to feel them, to allow them to, to kind of guide you and, and for you to notice, too, what comes up in relationship to them. Another um, part that I wanted to reflect on, because I think some people get stuck in communities or relationships because they don't want to be alone. It's hard to leave people. And... You know, I'm not endorsing quickly leaving relationships, right, obviously. But it's also important to remember that it is possible to find joy and well-being when awareness is your companion. When you get to be the tusker, the the elephant in the the woods, walking confidently. If you have, you know, the, the elephant is kind of so, you know, the biggest beast, right, in the wild. So they have a certain, you know, gravity to them and strength to them. They're also slow and, you know, 
said to have good memories, and you know, there's a lot of reasons. I think the Buddha probably referenced elephants, but um, you know, for walking in that way in the world with that confidence instead of fear, it's easy, much easier to find joy and a sense of well-being. So the final line in this poem from the Buddha is, it's better to wander alone. There's no fellowship with fools. Wander alone and do no wrong, at ease like a tusker in the wild. So, after reciting his poem, the Buddha moves on and he goes to visit a mendicant named Bagu in a village. So, as the Buddha approaches, Bagu saw the Buddha coming off in the distance. So, what did he do? He spread out a seat and placed water for washing the feet. When the Buddha came, he sat on the seat spread out for him and washed his feet. And then Bagu bowed to the Buddha and sat down to one side. So I mentioned this earlier, but this is quite a contrast, right? How the Buddha is being received in this setting is very, very different. And I wonder, what, what in our modern-day times... What's the equivalent of greeting someone in this way, a respected teacher? You know, laying out a seat, putting water for the feet to wash. What, what might we do, what do we do when someone we care for, we respect, and maybe even revere, comes to visit? Bow. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I offer them tea, water to drink, invite them to have a seat somewhere comfortable, ask them if they need food, if they're hungry, welcome them, please make yourself at home, please feel free to use my bathroom. <laughs> important, right? And then if somebody really important comes, I love the images of um, the Dalai Lama when he goes to visit places, because the Dalai Lama, you know, wherever he stays, this is not so much necessarily the greeting. There is always this intense greeting. Actually, I have a story about him greeting. So he went to IMS uh, in, in Massachusetts, and Sharon Salzberg was there in the back of the audience standing, but she had a broken leg, so she was on crutches and pretty miserable. And the Buddha's, I'm not the Buddha, the Dalai Lama's coming with this, you know, whole entourage of people and security guards and all of this stuff. And, but the Dalai Lama arrives and he looks around at all the people here and he zeroes right in on Sharon Salzberg, who's standing in the back, she says, looking pretty miserable. And he goes right back to her and asks her, are you okay? How are you, dear? 
That's so beautiful, right? So not only, you know, are we welcoming him when he comes, but he's at caring for us, right? The Dalai Lama. And then when he leaves a place, so if he stays at a, a hotel, so I'm told, uh, these are stories, right? But I believe them. Um, before he goes, he has all of the people who work at the hotel, everyone who has served him, stand in a long line, and he goes and he, he grabs their hand or bows to every one of them, one at a time. I also heard a story about someone who was in an airport, and they, they were with a couple other people waiting in some lounge area, and um, the Dalai Lama and his entourage walk by, pass them, right? He's kind of, they're off in this little corner. They go by, and then the Dalai Lama turns around and comes back and bows to them. So sweet. I have a quote from Lama Rod Owens, and he says, At the heart of radical presence is simply the act of love, loving ourselves, loving others, and allowing that love to be deeply manifested in the world in a real clear way. Those, to me, those are beautiful demonstrations of bringing the world, love to the world, manifesting in a real clear way. So the Buddha, having sat down, washed his feet, back to the sutta, he says to the mendicant, I hope you're keeping well, mendicant. I hope you're all right, and I hope you're having no trouble getting alms food. That's very touching to me. This is the, you know, this amazing teacher coming, giving his presence to you, and he asks you if you're doing well, if you're getting enough to eat. So this is like the Dalai Lama, right? His bowing, his taking the time to express care. So I asked you, how do you greet people? How do you welcome them? And how do you, how do you express your care for them? What do you say? How do you let them know that you sincerely want to know how they are? Not, hey, how you doing? With a fine, right? But maybe something more than that. So, Bagu says to the Buddha, I'm keeping well, sir. I'm all right. And I'm having no trouble getting alms food. Nice. Nice. And when the Buddha hears that, he goes on and he educates, encourages, fires up and inspires Bagu with a Dharma talk. Isn't that nice? Like, not just, you know, like, hi, how are you? You know, but like, okay, making sure he's okay, his needs are met. And then the Buddha goes to practice. He goes to the Dharma. First he makes sure you're okay. And then he goes to the Dharma. Because making sure you're okay is the Dharma, right? It's an expression of the Dharma. And... So the Buddha 
educated, encouraged, I love this, fired up and inspired Bhagu. So he's leaving Bhagu. Bhagu is practicing by himself. It's not described as being with anyone else. So this is, you know, it's okay, right? It's okay sometimes practicing alone is just the right thing. So the Buddha offers him the Dharma and then he gets up and he sets out for the eastern bamboo park. At that time, at the Eastern Bamboo Park, there were the venerables Anruda, Nandia, and Kimbila. Please forgive me for butchering their names. And they, um, the, and so the Buddha's approaching, and the park keeper sees the Buddha coming and clearly doesn't know who the Buddha is. And he says to the Buddha, Don't come into this park, ascetic. There are three gentlemen who love themselves staying here. Do not disturb them. I love that. There are three gentlemen who love themselves staying here. That is so sweet. Don't bother them. Um, But Anruda sees the Buddha. So he lets the security person no and says come forth venerables come forth our teacher the blessed one has arrived and they go out and uh, receive the buddha's bowl and robe and one spreads out a seed and one sets out water for washing his feet so the buddha sat on the seat spread out washed his feet and the venerables bowed and sat down to one side The Buddha says to Anruda, I hope you're keeping well, Anruda, and friends. I hope you're all right, and I hope you're having no trouble getting alms food. So, keeping well. I just thought I'd kind of define, talk about what does it mean? Good or satisfactory, skillfully, ably, competently, adeptly, admirably, excellently, keeping well. All right. Synonyms are satisfactory, acceptable, adequate, good enough, fine, reasonable, unobjectable, suitable, right? And then getting alms food, right? Getting, so come or to have or hold, to receive, and food, right? Nutritious substance that we need in order to maintain life and growth. And they say, We're keeping well, sir. We're all right. And we're having no trouble getting alms food. Okay. Now this is now the Buddha's talking to a community. And instead of going right into telling, teaching the Dharma, the Buddha says, I hope you're living in harmony, appreciating each other without quarreling, blending like milk and water, and regarding each other with kindly eyes. Wow. Living in harmony, appreciating each other. Living in harmony is, you know, a pact of peace and concord, agreement, you know, consensus, unity, concert, mutual appreciation, mutual, right? Experienced or done by each toward the others. 
reciprocal, reciprocated, returned, interchangeable, common, appreciation, recognition and enjoyment of the good qualities of someone or something, valuing, respecting, prizing, cherishing, treasuring, and admiration, and without quarreling. So in the absence of quarreling, blending, the action of mixing or combining things together, mingle, combine, mutiny, join, incorporate, interflow, co-mix. So there's something in this passage that sometimes um, people have a little bit of a hard time with, and that's this idea of, you know, blending like milk and water, regarding each other with kindly eyes, appreciating each other, especially... um, when they go on, the Buddha asks, you know, they say, indeed, sir, we live in harmony, as you say. Love this. Then the Buddha says, well, how do you live this way? How do you do that? Because we need to know, right? It's not a, you know, it's great when things are going well, but if we don't know what we're doing to support those conditions, it's easy to take them for granted and stop doing the things that are allowing it to happen, to manifest, So they answer that they're doing well, and they say, in this case, sir, I think I'm fortunate, so very fortunate to live together with spiritual companions such as these. I consistently treat these venerables with kindness by way of body, speech, and mind, both in public and in private. I think, why don't I set aside my own ideas and just go along with these venerables' ideas? And that's what I do. Though we're different in body, sir, we're one in mind, it seems to me. So here's where people can get a little bit tangled up. When they have been in a situation where they feel like they're constantly doing for others and it's not reciprocal. I made it very clear. I pointed out the, the way the Buddha is asking and teaching us is not just to give when it's not reciprocal, when it's not valued when it is when it is um in a way that isn't useful for us should be helpful to me to you and both right but this community is living in a mutual way they're they're sharing collectively in this way of relating to each other Remember, you know, the Buddha earlier said, if your companions aren't treating you well, it's better to go practice on your own, right? Another, um, there's this nice quote from a woman named Maria Popova, and she talks about um, kind of, oh, codependence, right? Because I think sometimes people are fearful of being codependent or being taken advantage of. And she says, when you love, truly love somebody, there is no version of reality in which what is good for them is bad for you. No choice they could possibly make that is right for them and wrong for you. Nothing they could give you that could make love more complete. She says, this is a difficult notion for the Western mind to grasp, too easily to mistake for the 
psychopathology of codependence, too quick to slip into the tyrannical romantic ideal of merging. At its heart is something else together, a kind of transcendent ego dissolution under which the self ceases to be and becomes being. So back to the sutta. And then the venerables spoke, the other two companions, and they added, that's how we live, in harmony. So they're agreeing, they're concurring with Anruta. The mutuality is here, appreciating each other without quarreling, blending like milk and water, and regarding each other with kindly eyes. The Buddha says, good, good, Anruta and friends, sadhu, sadhu. And then he says, but I hope you're living diligently, keen, and resolute. So diligent, having or showing care and consciousness in one's work and duties. Keen, having or shown eagerness or enthusiasm. Resolute, admirably, purposeful, determined, and unwavering. And they say, indeed, sir, we live diligently. And then the Buddha says again, but how do you live this way? And Anruta answers, in this case, sir, whoever returns first from alms round prepares the seat and puts out the drinking water and the rubbish bin. If there's anything left over, whoever returns last eats it if they like. Otherwise, they throw it out where there is little that grows, or drop it into water that has no living creatures. Then they put away the seats, drinking water, and rubbish bin, and sweep the refractory. If someone sees that the pot of water for dishwashing, drinking, or the toilet is empty, they set it up. If he can't do it, he summons another with a wave of the hand, and they set it up by lifting it with their hands. But we don't break into speech for that reason, and every five days we sit together for the whole night, and discuss the teachings. That is how we live diligently, keen, and resolute. And the Buddha says, good, good, Anruta and friends. So I'm going to wrap it up, and tomorrow night I'll continue, and the Buddha goes on, um, so you can listen to the talk if you're interested or not, right? But um, the Buddha goes on and talks about the corruptions as they show up in meditation, And he only does that because he sees that they are living in accordance with the Dhamma. The way we practice with each other in community affects our meditation practice. So I'll end with a quote by James Baldwin. The longer I live, the more deeply I learn that love, whether we call it friendship or family or romance, is the work of mirroring and manifesting each other's light. Gentle work, steadfast work, life-saving work in those moments when life and shame and sorrow occlude our own light from our view. But there is still a clear-eyed, loving person to beam it back. In our best moments, we are that person for another.
May the benefit of our practice be for the benefit of all.